Hello and welcome back to the Alt F4 podcast. This is the final installment in the preparation series for the month of September 2023, where um, September is the National Preparedness Month. And so I've been going through the first episode of the month was just talking about preparation in general. The second episode was about sheltering in place. And this one is titled Bugging Out. So I talked about the term bugging out last week. And just as a reminder, I couldn't find any real definitive information, but it seems to go back to World War II, whereby um, there would be some sort of sneak attack or unexpected event, and then all of a sudden everyone scatters to the wind like bugs. And I was using the analogy of cockroaches. When the light comes on, they all scatter. That's where, at least where I understand bugging out comes from. Sounds pretty plausible. And it fits, uh, I think, the, the, the narrative of the story. So, so let's get into it here. And I want to say that, you know, there's a reason why things went in this particular order is because it's very much preferable to stay at home and where you have all your resources and all your um, items and things, preparations, if you will, right? But there's just going to be times when that simply is not possible. And when you think about really what triggered the episodes to begin with, the um, fires in Maui and now... Uh, there's been two significant world, devastating world events that have occurred uh, over the last week. One of them being an earthquake in Morocco where there are thousands of people dead. And then secondly, um, a flash flood that occurred in Libya. And the numbers I'm seeing this morning are estimating somewhere around 20,000 people have died they think from from this flash flood so clearly these two things are not necessarily events that you have a lot of warning with Um, but if you do have the opportunity in the case of the flood i was reading that some organization did predict that there was going to be a dam failure in that that information made it to the government who declared a state of emergency apparently but um, apparently the information didn't really get out to the citizens and this event happened at I think something like 11 p.m. at night so everyone that was home for the most part was home already many of them asleep and then all of a sudden a 20-foot tidal wave of water comes and wrecks this town in Libya So there are events that um, you're just not going to be able to shelter in place for. And I'm not saying necessarily that um, maybe you would have had a warning about the earthquake, but if for some reason you got the warning about the dam breakage, maybe you could have left, right? And that's what I'm talking about with bugging out here. 
So before we get into some of the nuts and bolts of it, I just thought I would talk a little bit about my history with bugging out. And um, fortunately for me, there uh, haven't really been anything, there's not been anything real serious along those lines, but I'll say loosely that um, I've bugged out before. And so I'm going to talk about two things that have occurred in my life and um, my experiences with them. So the year was 1996. The day was New Year, uh, New Year's Eve. And we had just, me and my future wife had just returned from Christmas break. We were at her house having a New Year's Eve get-together, um, as we did as college students, drinking drinking a fair amount and staying up. And it was raining quite heavily. Um, I remember coming in the door, I don't know, probably about 8 or 9 p.m., and uh, it was raining hard. And this little house had very poor ventilation, of course, as all college rentals do. And so it was pretty, it was kind of steamy inside the house, to be honest. Well, we didn't think much of it and went to bed sometime after midnight. I know when we were sort of getting, getting rowdy at a little after midnight, it was, it was still raining pretty hard. Um, I woke up the next day. And I turned on the TV because, at least at that point, most of the bowl games were right around the New Year's Day, between New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and the first couple days of the New Year. And I turned on the football game, and I see at the bottom of the screen, do not drink the water. Um, You know, flash flooding occurred in my small town. This was, of course... I was drinking a glass of water because, as everyone knows, after a night of drinking, you're dehydrated, and so I immediately dumped it out and um, tried to figure out what was going on. Well, um, to make a long story long here, what what really happened was we, we got a significant amount of rain. This college town was at the base of a ski resort mountain. And so uh, the elevation at the top was about 7,000 feet. And the elevation of the town was about 2,000. And so there's about 5,000 feet drop of elevation in very small distance, maybe a mile or something. And so there had been snow up at the ski resort, but this rain that came in, as oftentimes does in the Pacific Northwest, When we get a significant amount of rainfall, it's usually because it's coming from the southwest. And so it tends to be a lot warmer than um, the prevailing westerly or northeasterly winds that come in off the Gulf of Alaska. And so um, because it rained a lot and because there was snow, the rain happened to melt the snow. And there's a little creek that runs through town. It's it's called um, Lithia Creek. And for the, for the most part of the year, it's probably about a foot in depth. Um, so it doesn't um, it doesn't have a ton of flow. Now it is dammed. It's dammed up 
farther up at the mountain and it's used as a reservoir for the city water supply but what had happened was the all that snow had melted and all the water from the rain came down and made that creek some sort of gigantic flash flood and the result of that was that it broke some water mains that fed the city water supply and that was the uh, boil water or do not drink the water warning but the devastation was actually quite significant um, it ruined many of the downtown businesses for a period of months if not years in some cases it destroyed an overpass bridge that crossed the creek and crossed a uh, well, we'll say it's maybe a draw or a canyon as the creek flows. And so it cut off the town, um, essentially the east, the eastern half from the western half, or maybe the northern half from the southern half. It's kind of skewed diagonally, but um, in order to get to the other side of town, you would have to go back out to the freeway to the nearest exit, then back around. There were a number of college students that lost everything, um, particularly if they were in the, the ground floors, their apartments. And, um, you know, I didn't, there was no injuries or anything, but, um, but it was pretty devastating from an economic standpoint. And, and so the, everybody reacted rather quickly, actually. The National Guard was activated, and they brought in water water for people to fill up containers. They actually set up mobile showers, um, and so the as a result, the school decided that they were going to postpone starting winter term a week, and so um, we made my wife and I made the decision to go back home. And that was a good decision in a lot of ways. It wasn't a huge disaster per se, but, you know, the idea of maybe taking a public shower in January wasn't super appealing. Um, the idea for, of standing in line to fill up water jugs wasn't super appealing. My roommate, uh, he stayed. And for me, I went back home and worked another week, so I made some more money. And it was also the week of my birthday, so I celebrated my birthday unexpectedly at home. And it was just, um, you know, it was good. When we got back, the water main was fixed, but the damage took um, probably over a year to fix. Particularly the overpass. I think that was the most significant one. Some of the restaurants that are lining the creek ended up with tons of mud and debris so they had to be basically remodeled to to begin business again uh, some of them didn't make it unfortunately we had friends that um, were i'll say citizens rather than college students that lived in the area and they ended up with a huge like a foot of mud in their house because the hillside collapsed uh, we were back to visit a couple years ago and um, all has returned back to normal. So but it's a freak thing, right? Um, I don't know that 
anyone would have ever thought that was going to happen. Nor do I think, was I aware of any warnings? Now, it could be that um, the fact that we were not in town until New Year's Eve, maybe the warnings were out there and we just weren't aware of them because um, our homes, my, my future wife's and my home, were many hundred, hundreds of miles away, so we didn't get the same media sources, nor did we have the same type of information coverage that we have today. So um, things were much more analog back then. So that was the first time we bugged out. Uh, second time uh, occurred in the year 2020. And this was the year that we had all the wildfires in close proximity. Now, we weren't in real danger of anything, at least. I mean, the fire danger was high, but the reality was the wildfires were 50 miles away, probably. The problem was was the wind direction, which one, both fueled the wildfires because we had dry winds coming from the east. And that subsequently pushed the smoke into our area. And I posted pictures at that point. I've even talked about it, but we decided to leave. My wife was saying that, and I think a lot of it's mental, but um, that, you know, the smoke was bothering her. And make no doubt about it. I mean, it smelled like a campfire when you were outside and the skies were gray and there was little fine ash on everything. But, um, you know, the danger, I suppose it's hard to measure what the lung damage might be um, as a result of exposure to that. But can't forget that this was the time of masking too. So <laughs> hopefully we were saved, quote unquote. Um, it was just real smoky. And so what we decided to do at that point was we decided to call my sister who lives on the very tippy tip there of um, Washington along the sound and say, how's the weather up there? Oh, it's great. So they weren't getting the same east winds that we were getting, nor were their fires burning to the east of them. So they didn't have the smoke that, that we had. So we asked if we could go uh, up for a couple days, which we did. And just, I think it was just over a weekend. Uh, maybe it was a long weekend. I I can't remember. I wasn't working at the time, so whatever the days were didn't really impact me so much. Um, we were up there maybe two nights. And then things finally did change, and and we came back home. So um, I don't know that either one of those events would really, would, would really count as bugging out, but um, they were times that we opted to leave based on conditions that were better somewhere else than they were perceived to be where we were at. Um, uh, one more time, one more thing I, I want to talk about real quickly before I move on. And that was Mount St. Helens in 1980. Um, despite the fact that earthquakes and flash floods and things don't have a lot of warning, if you've watched any documentaries about that period of time, you'll know that for several months, um, 
the volcanic activity was was at an increased amount on Mount St. Helens. And I was only five years old when it erupted. So, um, you know, I don't, I, I remember certain things vividly. I don't maybe remember all the context, but I have seen documentaries since. And um, based on that activity that was going on, the Forest Service that governs the forest around St. Helens, Mount St. Helens, and the municipalities and things where sheriffs, local sheriffs, deputies, were urging people to evacuate. When the mountain did finally erupt in 1980, um, you know, it wasn't like a Krakatoa type eruption, which nobody knows how these things are going to go, right? But um, it caused another flash flood landslide, if you will, because all that heated material melted all the snow that was on there and and this was may so this would have been the peak of the snowpack um on the mountain and caused you know a debris flow to to slide down the side of the mountain and ultimately eight people lost their lives in that event and so i think that's the one that we can point to to say that you know we can't always predict the um smoke from the wildfire is going to bother us or that um that we're going to have a flash flood on new year's new year's day but we can predict that or we do know with some certainty that it's dangerous to be around an an erupting volcano and as even as i speak right now we do know that mount st helens is still volcanically active and even mount hood is is volcanically active there's a crevice in the mountain that is um, open all year round, and so um, it's possible to get to it even in the middle of winter time. And so, um, you know, the threat exists. You know, the probability, as I talked about, the probability matrix of it is is low, but it's hard to say. I mean, if it's a 10 eruption we're probably all dead if it's a five i'm probably fine but if the signs start showing you know that the likelihood that we'll have a problem is high then we'll probably choose to leave at least until that subsides okay so i'm not familiar with every single disaster out there i mean a lot of it's because i don't live in hurricane country and i don't live in uh, severe thunderstorm country for the most part, but the, I'll speak about the one that I do know more about, and that's the wildfire situation. There's essentially three levels of wildfire readiness when we get to that season, and that season is essentially from the time the snow melts until the time the snow returns, which, generally speaking, that's going to span depending on what elevation you're at, that's going to span probably from mid to late June until um, early October is the typical fire season. 
Now you don't need snow necessarily. Rain is also good, but when you get rain in the summertime, it's often accompanied by lightning in those areas, which then tends to cause more fires than it actually puts out. So conditions are more favorable for fighting fires when there's some rain in the forecast, but um, just beware that uh, rain has the chance of causing more fires too. So um, in fire season, they use three levels. Uh, level one is essentially a situational awareness. And just like I said, if, if you live in those fire prone areas or you're in close proximity to them, um, I think level one is summertime. <laughs> That's what's going on. Are there any fires near me or how close, how far away are the closest fires? Do we see any, any um, effects from those snow, uh, star, sorry, not snow, smoke, um, this year, as I've spent a little bit more time in Central Oregon than I have in recent years, I've had a little bit more exposure to some of the fires going on and um, been around some of the smoke that's been a part of it. But fire is a fact of life. Fire is part of our life cycle as as um, the ecosystem. And, you know, I, mean, I am sensitive to the damage that fire can cause, but I'm also sensitive to the good that fire can cause. Many fires are naturally started by lightning. Some of them are started by idiots. Uh, I think about the Gorge Fire, the Columbia River Gorge Fire that happened about 2016, where some fools were shooting fireworks off and caught the, the forest on fire. So we have both causes, and, and throughout history we've had both causes um, uh, that shaped our landscape. Native Americans used fire to drive prey out, and they also used fire as a forest management tool. And there are some species of trees that actually won't grow unless there's a fire, and there are some species of trees that need that fire to continue to grow. And I think of there's a pioneering species called the lodgepole pine, which is very prevalent in central Oregon. And that tree won't germinate unless there's a fire that actually ruptures the pine cone, unless it's done artificially. Whereas the ponderosa pine, which is also native to central Oregon, will get choked out by underbrush and other trees if there's not fire to clear the underbrush that grows underneath them unless they become a substantial tree once they get to be 200 feet tall or whatever they're a very tall tree species um, then they're not in threat but they can get out competed by other species um, that can grow just as tall as well and that's called forest succession and now i'm really going on a tangent that's <laughs> has nothing to do with really what I'm trying to get at here. So level one is situational awareness. Level two is be ready. Essentially the change of that level happens when there is a nearby fire. So um, in the case, and I see it, I've seen it multiple times in, in recent years where there was some relatively close fires this year 
Um, and so people that live in the outlying areas were in the be ready state. And be ready state means that uh, you should have, you know, your exit route plan. You should have your car ready to go. You should be ready to leave when you get the the next level, the go now level um, notification. But that things are still in an undetermined state at this point. So as I just alluded, level three is go now. That means don't stop for anything. Leave because you're an imminent threat of the fire. And I think that when we look at Maui, for instance, um, we didn't, they, I don't think they went through the three levels of progression. One, I don't see Maui as having a lot of wildfires. Now, maybe I'm just ignorant here. So, you know, maybe the system's not as developed or as, as well known there, but I also don't think it progressed in a, in a manner to actually activate the system. It was essentially situational awareness and go now. Um, you know, situational awareness being it's the season for fires. Fires can happen. Um, you live in a vulnerable area, so on and so forth. Oh, it's here. Go now. And so, um, you know, that it's that level two that's really sort of critical for being ready to leave and leaving successfully even. So that's, that's how the, that's how the system works for wildfires. Now let's talk about another familiar disaster, at least familiar to me. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers Hurricane Rita. That was the hurricane that was, that was the following year of Katrina that happened on the Gulf coast and hit, um, hit the Houston area. I think there was some, I think, uh, new, new Orleans was, was in the path potentially or on the edge or something like that. But based on what had occurred in Katrina, um, people were very excited to leave the area <laughs> when they thought there was a hurricane coming their direction. And so the civic authorities reversed flow of the freeways and things and basically enabled the options to get out of town. Unfortunately, there were too many people leaving. And so what happened was a combination of two things. One, good luck. It was good that Rita, I believe, was a level one hurricane. Maybe it was a level two, but it certainly wasn't the five that Katrina was. And two, um, bad luck. The freeways ended up becoming a traffic jam. And, you know, Katrina's starting to get into the rearview mirror quite a ways now. Um, but, you know, 15 years or so. But um, ultimately, you know, the, there was a ton, there was catastrophic damage that was caused with that one, which was high in the minds of people in the area when Rita came and it didn't turn out to, to go the way that um, we thought it could go. 
Now, because of the traffic jam, there were there were actually several fatalities as a result. There were some accidents that occurred, and then they, I believe there was a bus full of senior citizens that a number of them died on the trip because they were stuck in the bus. And I don't I don't remember all the details, but I think dehydration was part of it. And any of you that have been in the South, particularly in the summertime, this would have been, I think it was early fall, but know how miserable it is. And then you're in a tin can and you're stuck and these were vulnerable people that were immobile and there probably were no supplies and so on and so forth. So it was a travesty getting out of um, Houston, out of the way of the hurricane. In that case, maybe it might have been better to weather the storm than die on the freeway. But my point is, is with with both Maui and um, Rita, that timing is important when you leave. Because if you wait too long, then you end up in the traffic jam. Now, I, I suppose it also depends on where you live and how far you're going and all that kind of stuff. So... For me, in my situation, I live in a valley and there's kind of a chokehold on the ability to cross rivers and arterial thoroughfares. Um, So, you know, if I'm going to end up going anywhere of significance, I have to negotiate the landforms that uh, are out there, right? So I have rivers that meander back and forth across the the, f- the main freeway, there are some highways, you know, that go east to west. It just depends on what the disaster might be as to which road or which route I might take. But um, it doesn't take too many people to end up causing a traffic jam. And then just like Maui, um, you have to jump into the ocean to save your skin. So I uh, went... That's a little bit about getting started into it. Now let's talk about bugging out specifically. The most important thing is is going somewhere, anywhere, as long as it's not here. Now, um, if you live in an area where you have multiple potential disasters, then you can't really predict, you know, which direction they might be coming for. So... You need some some cardinal directions, like if it's coming from the south, I need to go north, I'm heading this way. If it's coming from the west, then I need to go east, I'll go this way. If it's coming from the east, I'll go west. You get my point. Um, you know, where you go, it doesn't have to be a camp in the middle of, the, of nowhere like... Uh, like um, the zombie apocalypse camp or whatever, it's probably just as preferable to have a hotel, right? So knowing what routes are available, you know, maybe it's a, if it's a small scale disaster, like the flood in my town, I would just have to go to the next town over and get a hotel if that's how I wanted to handle that situation. I think at my age and my station and where I'm at, I probably wouldn't leave again because I'm, this is my home here. Um, when I was a student, 
with rental property and very little property to speak of, it was just as easy to go home than it was to stay. And it was certainly probably more comfortable to go home than it was to stay. Whereas here, I probably would stay if that were the case. But, um, you know, if you're going to leave, the most valuable commodity you're going to have is money. And today it seems like it's some combination of cash and card. Um, although I would say that card has been highly skewed since the pandemic. Um, I do travel some for business and most of the hospitality type arenas have gone to what's called contactless payment, which means you might order through their app, but essentially what it means is you're not paying with cash. You might give them a card, but you're not paying with cash. Um, I'm not going to say cash is not valuable and it depends on where you go. In some ways, cash is probably more valuable. But I will say that, just as an analogous story here, um, on our camping trip this year with the boys, I took out some cash because I was going to Central Oregon to campgrounds and stuff. And my, my thought was, well, the farther away you get from the city, the more likely it is that I'll need cash to do what I, I want to do, pay for a campsite or, or go to the little convenience store, or what have you. And that actually turned out to not be the reality. In fact, when I went to pay for the campsite, I couldn't pay, even pay for it with cash. I had to use a card to do so. When we paid the um, day fee for the national forest that we were at, that machine didn't take cash. It only took cards. Um, and so, you know, you got to have money in your account, of course, or a credit card. But the reality is, is, is even out in the sticks, things are going more to card-based rather than cash-based. But like I said, I'm still not going to um, say don't have cash because um, I think, well, I'll talk about cash in a minute. But cards are the best for hotels, rental cars, and airplanes. Um, I think in some cases, like I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, that uh, you can't even use cash to buy a drink or whatever on an airplane. It's got to be a credit card or a card. That being said, a lot of the mom-and-pop establishments are going to have give you preferential treatment for cash. Um, if you think about the networks, right? If this is a real disaster, there may not be power or there may not be internet. And there, therefore, if there's not those things, you're going to have a hard time using a card in those situations. So I still would recommend, um, I would, I myself would like a hefty amount of cash and a hefty bank account. <laughs> um, so, now, if you have distributed friends across the world, then they I would say friends or family is an okay second choice. Um, in the case of visiting my sister, that's not something that we routinely do. We don't go up there and spend a lot of time with them. I suppose if you do, then it's probably more normal anyway. 
Um, I just, I guess I don't prefer the imposition. Of course, I would take in some refugees, but, you know, I, in my own mind, I would rather use, you know, their help for a night and then find something for myself rather than, well, we're going to camp out for an indeterminate amount of time. That's a recipe for wearing out your welcome, right? And so, outside of having somewhere to go, uh, I think the second most important thing is having a, your personal device handy. Um, and that really means having a means to charge it. Now, if we have a 911 or something where um, service is non-existent and what, what service is existent is full, um, it may not be helpful. But again, I'm assuming you're leaving and going to somewhere that's more normal. So um, you need to be able to charge that device. That means having a charging cable or wireless charging or however, however your vehicle does that these days. Um, you know, you can supplement with other things like batteries or what have you if you really have to. But in um, when we were staying up, visiting my sister, one of the determining factors was the weather report, you know, because our house wasn't really at risk of burning. It was like, when is, when is the weather going to change? When is the wind going to change? And what's the air quality index for, for our location versus where it was when we left? Is it better? Is it getting better? Is the wind changing? Is the rain coming? Um, and so, you know, I just mentioned this. I think everybody's aware of the capability of what phones can do, but um, they can help you with alternate routes using apps like Waze and things. Now, I'm not 100% a fan of all these things, but if you don't know where you're at and where you're going, it can be helpful. Um, you can put your cards on your phone, right? So I'm an Apple user. You can put your cards in your Apple wallet. And you can have one thing, one item to store most of what you need because you could use your phone to pay in a lot of cases. Um, you, you know, you can check the weather, you can communicate with people, get status updates, all that sort of stuff. You get the point. But, you know, when leaving, I think you need to know where you're going to go, how to get there take your phone. I think the next thing, which is sort of self-evident, is if you're going to drive, assuming you're not running away from the problem, or flying away if you live in the Alaska bush or something, the, make sure that your vehicle is prepared. So level two is really the, you know, the key time to do that. I would... I would propose that you keep your vehicle prepared at all times and more particularly in level one when you know there's a potential of something happening. But, um, you know, with preparedness, that's keeping your getting your valuables packed that you're going to take with you or at least organized and within easy reach, having your gas tank full, having your tires and brakes in order. I know like for me, I'm guilty of being frugal, and so um, I want to get every last mile off my tires before I get new ones. 
And so I've been known to uh, inflate my tires every couple days if they're not holding air, just because I'm, like I said, I'm trying to get every last mile out of them. But that's not the time to do that. So if you uh, are in level one or two, uh, go get new tires <laughs> if you need them. Um, heck, you might even need to drive through embers or flames even. So that's another good reason to, to have that stuff ready to go. Um, you might want to have some snacks and water prepared in case you get stuck in a Rita gridlock. Now, as long as you're not infirm or elderly, it may not hurt you to be stuck, but sure is going to be unpleasant. Um, and then I, I threw this in, this wasn't a disaster, but this was a vacation that we took. We were driving from... I don't know where, well, we were at the Custer Memorial and we were driving to Cody, Wyoming, and we ran across some bugs. And these, these bugs were just everywhere and they coated our windshield. We actually had to stop and pour sparkling water on it because it's the only thing we had. Um, unfortunately, the we had washer fluid, but the the wipers were not adequately cleaning the smudge off the windows and our windows were coated with uh bug smudge so you know um those kinds of things that's another good reason to have water in your car is because you just can't anticipate um what kind of problems you might have if you've not had them before i think that was a time of year thing and a location thing because i've never really had that issue before but I just mention it because things can happen out of the box, outside the box, right? And you just need to be able to think about it um, so that you, you're ready to deal with things. We used, like I said, we used sparkling water because that's what we had. And we had some napkins because that's what we had. Um, if you have to leave suddenly, you may not have time for important to gather important information. This would be things, you know, like your passport, your account numbers, your uh, passwords and things like that. I think, you know, in lieu of suggesting that you prepare during level one, these are items that you should really be looking out for on a daily basis or a more routine basis. And there's lots of reasons for them. One of them would be estate planning is a good reason. It's not nice to die and have no one know how to access anything or even what there is to access and then have to spend a bunch of time trying to figure that out. And I speak with that with some authority because my wife had to go through a lot of that last year. And so, you know, a safety deposit box in a bank is also good. Um, duplicates are good. Putting data on the cloud is good. Just remember, though, that the more copies of everything you have, the more copies you have to one manage, right? So if I change it in this location, then I've also got these other locations that I have to keep current. And two, um, you increase the risk of a breach of some sort, right? So cloud is not um, is not 100% secure, but if you're a customer of Microsoft 
uh, office or family 365 or whatever it is like I am, you do get a secured vault uh, with that that's in OneDrive that you can put stuff in so that password protects everything in that folder. I don't know if it's um, encrypted or not, but uh, there are other encryption programs that you can use and there's whole strategies about putting your data with encryption somewhere and how to do that. You can even use code. You know, one-off encryption is something where you add a one to each digit. So, you know, instead of 876, it's 987. Uh, There's all kinds of things like that, but uh, I don't, I won't have the time to get into all that today, but just saying that, you know, what are you actually taking with you when you're leaving? You're taking the things that are most important. And while probably none of those things are lost forever, as long as you make it out, um, you're going to spend a lot of time and you wish you wouldn't have to spend trying to recreate all those things if you don't have them. So get prepared before that with getting organized helps with, like I said, helps with the state planning. It also helps with taxes. It helps with, with all, with finding it in general. Right. Um, and so uh, I'm going to start wrapping up here as I was writing my outline for the show. I realized that bugging out is actually a way more complicated subject than, uh, sheltering in place. And so, that's partially why this is running on longer than, than I would like it to run. But, you know, it's because the, it's because there's so many more variables in place. There's the variables of what kind of disaster it is. How are you going to leave if you can? Where are you going to go if you get there? What are you going to take with you? When you're sheltering in place, you don't have all those variables, only the, what is the disaster? Um, and so that's why I think it certainly is preferable to stay where you're at if you can. But understandably, there are things that you're not going to be able to actually weather when the um, when the flash flood comes and wipes out the whole town, you know. So generally speaking, I would say bugging out means getting away before the disaster. But it could be after the disaster. So... That's where I was referring to the the week that we left the for college. And, you know, the cleanup is often takes much more time than the actual event itself. And so you may be without systems of support for months. Um, even people that have water leaks in their bathroom get displaced for I've known people that have spent six months in a hotel because that's how long it took to fix the water damage um and so you're just uh let me stress you're looking to save your most valuable asset and that asset is you the rest of it can be dealt with after the fact so if you get level three go now and you haven't prepared anything the most important thing is to go now, not to save the photos or get your account information or your passport. Those things can be replaced, but you can't. And I think that's pretty self-evident, but might as well mention it since we're here, right? Um, with that, 
that's all I'm going to talk about with bugging out today. We will have a new topic next week. We'll get introspective again. And um, if you have any comments that you would like to send, that's brandon at altf4.co. And remember to end your programming and do things that matter.